The fact itself is of no account. What matters is how people see it. From that young man, we can draw our second precept, pay close attention to your image. Okay? Hide away any side of your life that's not so savory and always project a brilliant exterior. I felt very much um, when I first read them in the, the late 80s and early 1990s um, that Balzac, in a way, was writing almost more accurately about the 20th century than most 20th century writers did. There was just a sense that Balzac tells you, you know, how the world works. I'm Doug Armato. I'm director of the University of Minnesota Press and as an editor, um, I've had the pleasure these past years of working with uh, Raymond McKenzie, who has translated quite a few books of uh, 19th and 20th century French literature. And Raymond McKenzie is professor of English at the University of St. Thomas and a translator of uh, a lot of different uh, key authors. Uh, for Minnesota, he's published translations of uh, Stendhal, Barbé de Reveille, and Lamartine, as well as the contemporary critic Lionel Ruffel. His translation of Zola's Germel was a finalist for the Penn Translation Award. His translation of Stendhal's Italian Chronicles was shortlisted for the National Translation Award. And his Madame Bovary was selected for use in the Norton Anthology of Western Literature. Uh, he joins us today from St. Paul, Minnesota. Hello, Ray. Hello, Doug. Good to be here with you. The occasion for this talk is Balzac, and that uh, you've just completed uh, the second of two linked Balzac novels. The first is his famous novel, Lost Illusions, and the second uh, just published his lesser-known continuation, Lost Souls. That's nearly 1,200 pages uh, in all. So what is it like to uh, live with an author such as Balzac or Balzac uh, specifically for what I think has been some three years now? Oh, Balzac is, is very good company, very good, uh, very good author to live with. I was thinking about contrasting him with uh, Flaubert, who... Just about 10 years after Balzac's death, Flaubert uh, made a kind of a famous formulation about the relationship of the novelist to the novel. And he, he said famously, um, the author in his work should be like God in the universe, present everywhere, but visible nowhere. And that sort of impersonal approach to the novel where the, where the author never intrudes, never, never gets between the reader and the subject matter probably comes to an extreme with certain modernists. I think you have T.S. Eliot in particular, who says that what the poet is trying to do is not express his personality, but escape from it. Uh, so that literature that is that is impersonal and, and perfectly shaped and sculpted is the Flaubert sort of literature. But I think in contrast with that is Balzac, who is very, very happy to express his personality all the time, uh, to indulge it even and to even intrude it. He, he, he makes comments on characters. He makes comments about uh, life constantly. Um, he digresses. He's happy even to advertise his other books. There are a number of points where he'll, he'll refer to some uh, character and he'll say, see Pergorio or, or see this other novel, uh, just to make sure that the, uh, that the reader notices that the, the person pulling the strings is, is in, indeed Honoré de Balzac. As a personality, in other words, what I'm saying is that he's very, he's very present in the books and the novel, I think, went in a different direction after him, but it's a pleasure to come back to, uh, to that kind of presence. By all accounts, he was the same way in real life, actually. 
sort of a compulsive storyteller as opposed to a conscious cold artist. Uh, just, just these things seem to pour out of him. There are tales of him showing up at a friend's house and just kind of bursting in the door and saying, uh, I've got to tell you what just happened to me. And when he starts the story before long, he's fictionalizing it very clearly. And apparently it was such a raconteur that, uh, that he you know, could hold people's attention for hours with these stories that he just sort of rattled off. As I say, it's not so much a, a matter of an art as a matter of, of, of compulsion with Balzac. And, and you feel that in the, in the novels. In the process of translating these two books, I've been living constantly with that, that, that presence, with that, that voice and that personality. And my hope is to, to replicate it as much as I can to make sure it's present in, in my translations as well. Well, that, um, I mean, if I'm recalling the phrase directly, uh, you brought up Flaubert and um, he was known for suggesting that, that the writer should live like a, a good bourgeois, um, you know, oh. have a very modest life. And Balzac, as you said, was sort of, you know, gargantuan character in his own way. I mean, yep. known for wearing monk's robes and massive banquets and coffee just from, you know, dawn till way after dark. So um, so it really is a, a switch. And as a translator, you, you've done writers with such different personalities. Um, do, do you enjoy switching from sort of author to author and not being necessarily a, a specialist in one author or another? I really do enjoy the, the, the change. I, I uh, can't admire anybody any more than I admire Flaubert, but at the same time, it was, it's great to get to the, his opposite number in someone like Balzac here. And the, the other kinds of authors I've worked with, too, are all, are all very different. There are those um, sort of uh, Promethean translators from the 19th century, like Ellen Marriage, who worked her way through the entirety of Balzac. You honor people like that, <laughs> but I don't think I could be one myself. I think I'd go go mad it's it's nicer to it's nice to be able to move around a bit yeah i can I, I can definitely see that and um sometimes um this is you know my own thoughts some of those great translators of that period every book they do has a certain polish to it or a certain sense of yeah. sameness it seems sometimes whereas yeah. you know having worked with you now on several books i mean your your balzac is for instance a very different voice from your lamartine i mean it couldn't be more different in, in a lot of ways uh you know lamartine is so sensual and balzac is almost shouting at you i think <laughs> yes that's true that's true um and lamartine is is, is so gentle by comparison it's it's uh, <laughs> there's, there's a story that he actually enjoyed balzac's novels uh which um, it's surprising that he that he would. He seemed to have such a different sensibility. But I guess he, he understood what was good about them, as we do. So together, these novels, you know, just to summarize briefly, um, you know, follow the highs and lows of a young poet and social mm -hmm. climber, Lucien de Rubempré, from his provincial upbringing to um, Parisian high society. He, um, he's then, uh, after his triad, you know, Parisian society, he's um, chastened back to the provinces. And then once again, he's sort of brought back to the brink of an, of an uneasy triumph in Paris. So it's really quite a amazing um, story that this, you know, young man of modest means and background goes through. I mean, how would you characterize uh, Lucien? Oh, gosh, yeah. I think you could argue that Lucien is uh, one of the most important, most imitated characters in all of 19th century fiction. His story is, is almost archetypal. The, the young man of artistic talent who comes from the provinces to the metropolis and slowly loses all his youthful idealism, all his illusions, and eventually succumbs to the, the deadening weight of, uh, of modernity. 
um, his, his story has, uh, you know, been considered almost a, a parable of, uh, of the fate of the artist under capitalism, where everything good and ideal and pure ends up being turned into a saleable commodity, uh, and where, in fact, everything is for sale. It's also, I, I think uh, I, I have the opportunity frequently to teach Milton, and I, I, there's something of Paradise Lost about the story of Lucien as well a movement from innocence to painfully acquired experience, but it's couched not so much in the framework of falling into sin, but rather falling into the harsh realism of the modern world. In that sense, Lucien's story maybe for many of us readers becomes almost a, almost a universal one. We see uh, something of what happens to him in, in all of us. The whole thing is made so vivid early in the, uh, in the story of Lost Illusions, where uh, one of the first booksellers Lucien encounters is a guy who's who's literally selling literature by the pound. He's, he's weighing it up in boxes just to be sold by the by the pound, so that the the beautiful and delicate poems and novels that the innocent Lucien thought he would be creating, to the delight of a, of an enraptured audience, uh, now I realize it's just so many pages. There's so much weight to be uh, to be weighed and sold at such and such a price. But having said all that, I don't think Lucien is exactly reducible to a parable or a lesson. He's an extraordinary triumph on Balzac's part, I think, paradoxically, because there's so much to dislike about Lucien, and we nonetheless care about him and want to follow him all the way through to the end of his story. Uh, remember the, the, the story about Oscar Wilde claiming to have been heartbroken upon reading of Lucien's death. When I think of Lucien, the first term that comes to mind is weakness, that he's morally weak, he has very little willpower, He's intellectually weak. He doesn't make good decisions. He doesn't think things through. He overthinks things that he should have just done naturally. And he underthinks things that he should have thought through. He lets himself become uh, passive. He becomes picked up and taken over and mothered by, uh, well, first his sister back in Angoulême and, and, and his mother too, but the sister is like a mother figure. Then the young actress Coralie uh, who literally cleans him up and tucks him into bed the first night and uh, takes care of him like a child. I think she's actually younger than him, but she becomes a, a kind of a mother figure and she dies for him in a way. Uh, his, his first lover back in Angoulême, Madame de Bargeton, is likewise a, a mother figure. And then ultimately he comes under the, the hand of the ultimate mother figure. And that, <laughs> is, <laughs> that is the, the false Spanish priest, Carlos Herrera who we learn much later turns out to be the arch-criminal of Vautrin. But he too speaks about Lucien in terms of mother and son. So I guess what I'm saying is that for me, Lucien never really takes charge of his life. You know, he, he lets things happen to him. He gets wafted from here to there. And uh, as a result, there's a, there's a weakness to the character, so much so that it's, it's a little surprising how compelling the guy is and how compelling it is for us readers to follow him. And I, I wonder, Doug, do you, do you react to him the same way or...? You see him differently. Well, it's it, it's interesting. Um, you know, as, as you know, we've talked about this. I, I first um, read these books when I was in my twenties. Um, you know, and I'm now in my early sixties, so it, it's been quite a while. And you see them a little bit differently. But it, it isn't just that. What really astounded me reading, um, you know, your translations is is that Balzac is actually you know being quite funny. I mean, you know, that the, the, there are moments when Lucien's 
behavior is so odd and extreme and nonsensical that you just find yourself laughing out loud. And I said, was it, was it really like that when I read it in the 20s? And, and I went back to the translations I'd read then, and they were much more sort of even and stately in a way, whereas in, in your translation, the comedy, Balzac's sense of humor, you know, really comes through. Um, and so you tend to see Lucien, you know, not so much as a sort of heroic uh, young man, but but as someone who, as you say, again and again, just just makes bad choices um, and gets caught in situations that, you know, he later regrets. Yeah, and I, I think we do read these characters very differently at different stages in our life. When I was young, I would have, I probably would have identified with Lucien and, and ignored the negative aspects of his character. Just as when I first read Madame Bovary, I thought Emma Bovary was a was a perfect heroine, and she would have had a perfect life if only she had met me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it is as you say, though it's partly that you know what what still affects you, um, you know, about Lucien's story, and you know, clearly it also affected Oscar Wilde is just you know that sense of lost illusions of just how you know again and again he has an ideal of of who he might become. And again and again, he fails either through his own weakness or through manipulations by people who are, you know, much, much wiser in the ways of the world than he is, um, whether they be aristocrats or whether they be lawyers or whether they be the, you know, master criminal disguised as a Spanish priest, uh, Carlos Herrera. So the, the other thing which is, which is interesting, when we first started talking about you know, the idea of translating these these two works. And mm -hmm. I'd always been a little troubled, as I said, that, you know, Lost Illusions was so well known. And the book, which you called Lost Souls, was hardly known at all, it seemed, even though the story, you know, is continued in them. And so at the time, you know, I came from the sort of sense that, you know, this was one long narrative. And in our conversations, you made clear that it was anything but one long narrative. <laughs> this was several books. Yeah. This was a long project fused together. Maybe you could say something just about the way Balzac composed this work. Yeah, yeah. Fusing together is a, is a, good, a good phrase. Uh, Alan Pasco uh, referred to Balzac as a person who does montage. He's got a part of a novel here, part of a novel there. And when you put them together, they make a really interesting whole. And it, maybe you don't even realize that until you do put them together. And that's kind of the way that the, uh, the composition of both Lost Illusions and, and Lost Souls took place, was, was in, a, in a patchwork way and in, in retrospect, I, I think. I, I, maybe I'm selling Balzac short here, but I, I think it's in retrospect that he realizes, oh, now, now I see what I can do with these things. Now I can put these together. Uh, at the time, I thought I was, I was going down this one path, but now I see I've got, I've got a larger road than I, than I thought I had. And I try to detail that composition process in the introduction to both books because it's, it's quite complicated in both cases. They were both published piecemeal and then slowly, slowly brought together. But you know, the larger question about why the second novel is, is less well known is, is a good one. First is the title, which is wonderful in French and very hard to manage in English. Splendeur et misère de courtisans. Splendors and miseries of courtesans. <laughs> uh, it, it, it somehow sings in French and it's, it's awkward and, and clunky in English. Um, although I've occasionally seen that phrase being used. I saw someone in the introduction to a book the other day referring to this, his book as being a, an introduction to the splendors and miseries of German metaphysics. <laughs> so, what a thought. The phrase does get translated into English and that, that's nice. 
but that, that, that title is one thing. But also with this book, we enter into a world of, uh, especially of the criminal underworld. There's, there's murder, there's kidnapping, there's uh, prostitution, it's fright and center, not just as a, as a metaphor, as it usually is in Balzac's work, but, but it's, it's literally there. The buying and selling of people, uh, Esther most, most horribly. And of course, then when we move into the, into the criminal underworld, we get a glimpse of, uh, somewhat surprisingly, we get a, a glimpse of a, of a gay underworld uh, in, the, in the prison world there that one would, did not see coming at all in, in, uh, in a novel from the 1830s. And so for previous generations, I think there might've been something a little, I don't know, indecorous or salacious or something about this book that kind of kept it out of, out of people's perspective. That translator I mentioned earlier, Ellen Marriage, when she translated Splendor and Misere, she gave herself a male name uh, as translator, just that, that it, would be, it would be inappropriate for a woman's name to be on the title page of such a book. So that might have been part of what kept the book from, from the, the, the fame that it deserves and the popularity that it deserves in previous generations, but certainly not in our time where, where such things are more likely to be a, a selling point, you know, more likely to make the book of interest to people. Maybe this new translation will will help its reputation a little bit. As you know, it, it's, it certainly has no shortage of drama in it. <laughs> a lot of things happen in the second book that are just fascinating. I almost feel, um, you know, in a way, and uh, we haven't had a, a chance to really talk about this. In the past, uh, you know, we've always had time to get together when a book was published and, you know, go over it and talk about projects. But um, it almost seems as if uh, Lost Illusions is very much a Lucien's book, but that the polarity changes to Vautran in Lost Souls, that it becomes almost like a book about Vautran's, you know, desires and wishes and ambitions, you know, almost more than Lucien's. Lucien almost becomes a subsidiary character, it seems to me. Yes. And, and Vautrin is, you know, a, a truly fascinating character, um, not only because he has so many different names and is this mm-hmm. secret, um, you know, has this secret uh, underground alliance and network that he, you know, portrays and that he's, he has great confidence in his ability to manipulate society through all sorts of people who he plays almost like a puppet master. So you really have this fascinating, um, you know, master criminal here who, you know, to, to Lucien's final uh, misery just takes control of him. Yeah. Don't, don't want to give too many spoilers for anyone who hasn't read it, but, but I think it's, it's not a spoiler to say that poor Lucien comes to the end of his life in, in this second volume, uh, which is a terrible personal tragedy for Vautrin, who has put so much time into, into molding and shaping him and living through him vicariously and, and loving him, frankly. But at the same time, in the very last quarter or so of the novel, Vautrin suddenly emerges victorious. Uh, he, he dominates everyone, and he goes off on the last page of the book to start a whole new life, a, a life that Balzac apparently was going to come back to in a future book. And we would have heard more about the, the, the later uh, life of Vautrin as a, as a policeman, you know, of all things. But so it's really interesting that, as you say, Vautrin comes into the foreground, and we, and we see the, uh, the, the tragedy, the collapse of all his hopes which frankly, he's been working on not only in these two books, but all the way back to Père Goriot, where he tried to get Rastignac to be his, his puppet. There's a great moment when um, Rastignac in uh, Lost Illusions sees Vautrin with Lucien and he shudders. Yes. I mean, he literally <laughs> yeah. like, like, oh no, not him. Uh, 
one of the real delights about Balzac's world is the way all these stories interpenetrate each other. And you remember the character from this novel, he shows up in this one at just the right moment. And it, it is, there's such an almost electric shock sometimes at seeing some of these people on the stage where you, you, you realize that to Balzac, they all were real. They were, they, were, they were living characters. So much so that there's a story that on his deathbed, uh, when he called for a doctor, he called for Dr. Bianchon, who is one of his fictional inventions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a super uh, doctor, but, uh, but unfortunately not a real one. <laughs> so yes, this um, sort of way in which Balzac's characters, um, you know, recur um, is, is one of the great pleasures of, of reading the works. And, you know, just as uh, you've said, Lost Illusions and Lost Souls are made up of, you know, individual books that have been, you know, fused together. They're very much, you know, part of the Comédie Humaine, which was 91 novels and shorter works, all creating this world, plus countless ones that he never wrote, that Balzac never wrote. So what would you say is sort of the position of these two works within the Comédie Humaine? I mean, are they, are, are they sort of central? Yeah, he himself referred to them as the, the, the vertebral column, the spine uh, of the whole Comédie Humaine. And that's interesting to think about. I, I think that maybe thematically they could be seen as the spine. Um, again, with the kind of thing we were talking about earlier, the, um, the, the sense of the, the critique of modernity and of, uh, as Mark said, about all that is solid melting into air, everything being for sale. Um, that this is maybe the dark heart of the modern world that Balzac is documenting. And that maybe he thinks it comes through most, most comprehensively in these two books, which form one huge narrative. At the same time, as a translator, I'm going page after page and I'm finding references to this character from another book, that character from another book, this incident that occurs in another book. And you're realizing that in a way, as Balzac is putting this together, he himself must be seeing this as the, the magnet that holds all the pieces together or the spine, whatever metaphor you want to use, that the heart of it is, is here in these books. I felt very much um, when I first read them in the, the late 80s and early 1990s um, that, that, that Balzac, in a way, was writing almost more accurately about the 20th century than most 20th century writers did. There was just a sense that Balzac tells you, you know, how the world works. You know, and, and there's just so many, not just these books, but other ones where people who live virtuous, blameless lives, you know, really end up in horrible situations, you yeah. know, whereas the, the, the sort of manipulators, uh, you know, such as, you know, Vautrin, you know, end up going on to these, these triumphs. And um, there, there's something which seems just very current about that or very much of our time. Oh, it sure does. I, let me read you just a short section from uh, toward the end of Lost Illusions, where Vautrin is talking, or Carlos Herrera, the Spanish priest, we don't know yet that he's Vautrin, is speaking to Luciana, giving him a lesson. It's a long lesson, but just this short section from it. This is, uh, the fact itself is of no account. What matters is how people see it. From that young man, we can draw our second precept, play close attention to your image, okay? Hide away any side of your life that's not so savory and always project a brilliant exterior. Discretion, the watchword of the ambitious, is also that of our order. Make it yours as well. The great people commit about the same number of foul acts as the poor do, but they commit them in the shadows. And they make a grand parade of their virtues. And this is how they remain great. 
The little people hide their virtues in the shadow, exposing their misery to all in broad daylight, and thus they remain despised. Yeah. So <laughs> all that all that matters is image. And uh, you, you want to say, oh, Balzac, you had no idea <laughs> how, how far this was going to go. <laughs> It's really true. There are just so many moments, you know, reading these books where you just sort of <laughs> reflect on, you know, the, the, the world that we're in, you know, sort of leaving that world and, and going back to the you know, world Balzac was writing about, you know, one of the fascinations of these books is their descriptions of not only how the world in general works, but just the, the various uh, sort of, you know, industries and businesses that Balzac, you know, touches and that he, you know, reveals for us. And he takes, seems to take great glee in that. There is, you know, famously a remarkably detailed description of how paper is made that occurs in um, Lost Illusions. And, you know, you also have sort of dissections of the publishing industry itself, of journalism, the theater, prostitution, money lending, the legal chicanery, um, prisons, the judiciary, underworld gangs. I mean, it's an amazing switch, constant switching of gears. I mean, were there parts of that you you particularly, you know, enjoyed uh, translating or entering into those worlds? Yeah, that's, that's a really important aspect of of Balzac. And again, in a way, it's, it's a reflection of that personality that that's so attractive, that the man is interested in everything. It's not just that he knew this stuff, but he is enthusiastic about it, about the, the history of papermaking, you know, uh, and of course about the, the manufacture of books as well as the idealistic side of literature, um, the, 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 the world of banking, the world of theater, the world of the prostitutes, and the world of the criminal underworld. And that, I think, was the most, one of the most difficult parts of the translation of Lost Souls was that he, he's like an anthropologist the way he approaches his world. And like an anthropologist, he's, he gets fascinated by the language that the criminals use. And he's got, he includes a couple of little essays basically on slang and the, and the function of slang in, the, in the, the world as he sees it. And those, are, those could probably be detached from the book and, and, uh, and read on their own. They're quite insightful and quite interesting. But for the translator, that was one of the, the, the thorniest problems that I faced with Lost Souls was that, that criminal slang. Because Balzac is very insistent upon using it. So you can't just paper over it as a translator and just turn it into, let the, let the slang go and, and turn it into uh, ordinary English. But on the other hand, what do you do with it? Well, in some cases, it was simple. The slang term for a gang boss is the dab, D-A-B. Well, just translate as boss, you know, and, and boss works just as well today as it would have worked in the, in the 1830s. It doesn't sound anachronistic. But then there are other terms. The term for a gangster's girlfriend or wife uh, he, the term he uses is larg, L-A-R-G-U-E, larg, a weird word that no dictionary really will, will help you with. Back in the 17th century, apparently it was a mariner's term for kind of setting sail and setting off on the ocean. But that's part of a, part of a verb phrase, prendre la larg. And so how that got from there to the gangster's girlfriend, I have no idea, but, but you're, you're fascinated to think about how it might have might have taken that that place. Maybe she's the escape route or something that you know, and somehow that that got associated with it. But in the meantime, it doesn't solve my problem as a translator of what to do with the darn word, because I can't use uh, you know the, the word that comes to mind is mall. You know, but if you refer to the mall, you sound like you're, you're from the era of Al Capone or something, and and that's completely anachronistic. And so in a, in a case like that, I ended up leaving the French word in, and just 
adding a footnote and saying, thank heavens for footnotes, because in the footnote, I can explain what this means. That also gives the reader a little bit of the flavor that Balzac was trying to give his readers in French of this language that to them too was very strange and very foreign. Yeah, and the, the notes, I mean, since you, you bring up the notes, I mean, you know, one of the real um, fascinations of your translations is, you know, the, these in-depth notes which you provide to help, you know, track down these references. Um, and it becomes all the more complicated in Balzac because as it turns out, he made up a lot of stuff. Yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and, uh, and when you're, especially his literary and cultural references, you know, you'll say, no, th this person doesn't seem to actually exist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's fun to sort that out and, and, and hunt them down. He'll talk about, there were three men standing there, and two of them are fictional, but one is real, is a, is a real historical personage. And he's got the historical personage mixing with his fictional characters. and. And again, that's that's the fun of the of writing the footnotes is, is to be able to, to sort this out for the reader a little bit. Although maybe uh, maybe if the reader is a little confused, that's okay too. Maybe that was part of the <laughs> the effect he was trying to create. Well, I mean, t tell us a little bit about um, you know how you work as a trans. I mean, what, at what stage does your research take place, or does it take place all at once? You know, what's your what's your process of entering into these works? Well, only a couple of times I've translated a book because I was asked to, because of a, a contract was offered. In all my other cases, I've been able to translate books that I really wanted to translate, that I really, frankly, loved and, and, and wanted to work with. And that's, a, that's a, a real piece of luck on my part. I'm, I'm very grateful that that's the situation. But that being the situation, I sort of start already with certain knowledge of the, the author, the, the, uh, uh, the background, and then I will go on and make sure I, uh, I know as much as I can about the book and about its, its origins, its genesis, and its, uh, its context before I start. Then what I like to do is just open up to page one and get going and get a big <laughs> chunk, you know, 50, 100 pages done, and only then pause and say, now, what, what, do I need to, uh, what do I need to annotate? And then what do I need to revise? Because, oh, gosh, I need to revise all the time. My, my first drafts are terrible. And I'm so grateful that that I that I can revise. Um, I, I watch those people, like those UN translators, you know, where the where the French comes into their ear and it comes out of their mouths in English. I, I have no idea how they do that. <laughs> I have to pause and reflect and look things up and think it over. But fortunately, the, you do have that opportunity to do it when you're when you're doing written translation. I, I try to let the, the annotations uh, let them come a little bit later as part of the revision process. And, and sometimes the editor too will tell me, gosh, you really ought to have a footnote on this. I don't know what the heck is going on here. And, um, that, that's a good, good feedback to get. Mm -hmm. So in terms of that sort of revision process, did you actually literally translate the whole thing and then go back through it again? Or, or is it always in segments or? Segments, but big segments. I, I'd like to have, like I said, at least hundred pages before I stop. Because for one thing, you don't know where you're going yet, you know, until, until you've been there. The, the revision you might do on page one might change once you've done page 110. You know, when you realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm building up to this. Uh, I don't want to make that change after all. You have to sort of see the thing as a whole. And, and do you ever look at the prior translations? I try not to. I try not to. That's a, that's a curse, you know, because the French original says something like the, the door was open. And the previous translator says the door was open. So you're saying, okay, now I've got to say open was the door. <laughs> because I don't want to plagiarize anything. So, so no, it's just, it's best not to look at them at all. Uh, uh -huh. 
sometimes I have when I'm all done and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not too comfortable with this. How did he do this? And I go back and look at something else. And, uh, and sometimes I, uh, I'll, I'll make changes if I, if I feel I've missed something that the other person got. But um, you're so anxious about plagiarizing and copying that, that it's, it's best to just not open them at all. Now that makes sense. So, so I mean, you've, you've translated so many of the leading French writers of the 19th century now. I mean, you know, Stendhal, Montesquieu, Lamartine, Flaubert, Barbé de Revelé, Zola, Baudelaire. So these are all again is just very different <laughs> writers. I mean, not to yeah. not to put you on the the spot, but is is there a favorite? Is there an experience which just like to you is like breathing fresh air, or um, or do they all bring their own challenges? They, they all have their own pleasures. That's for sure. The easiest book to translate of that list you just gave was the uh, the Lamartine novel Graziella. There was something about that that just said, turn me into English. Every, every page, this test was, was ready to go. It seemed like for some reason it was the smoothest thing. A very, very pleasant experience. Uh, the hardest is probably Balzac and Barbet. Balzac, <laughs> because of those descriptions, those long descriptions, the thing I always dreaded was turning a page in Balzac and seeing a sentence that said, he was wearing, and then I know, oh, here we go. <laughs> There's going to be all this description of fashion terms that I don't know, and you know uh, materials that go into make up the the, the the shoes that this this guy is working and with and so forth. And I'm going to have to going to have to research all that and figure it out. Likewise with the interiors of rooms, he he knows all the words for you know how a lamp is attached to a wall and so forth. And you, some of these things don't exist anymore, but you've got to figure out how to how to clarify them for a for a modern reader in his own time when he was publishing in the periodicals. The editors complained that that subscribers were saying, "Tell that guy to cut out those descriptions. We're sick and tired of all those descriptions." <laughs> and so, you know, even the contemporary readers thought he was going too far with them. So the translator feels that way for sure. <laughs> but it, it, it's a sense of accomplishment to get them done. And then with Barbet and that that set of stories called the Diaboliques, that was difficult in another way. Uh, his sentence style—it's so abstract, so uh, so many clauses embedded within clauses and and arcane allusions that come up at the beginning of the sentence and are explained only fully by the time you get to the end. And I could have approached those sentences and said, no, I'm gonna turn them into so-called good English in the proper English, but I thought it was better to, to try to replicate what Barbe was doing so beautifully in his native language. And uh, that was hard. <laughs> yeah, so I say each of these authors gives you a different experience. <laughs> and and Barbe, comes across um, is so refined, I mean, you know, and just everything is just, you know, really almost crystalline, you know, when you're reading his descriptions. Now, you know, Balzac, I think famously, it's always been said, has a very journalistic kind of rough style. It, it, it's in a way a lot more blunt than we're used to in a lot of 19th century fiction, or at least when you read it in English translation, which a lot of times are English and bring their own level of polish sometimes to things. So what about Balzac's reputation as a, as a stylist? I mean, do you, do you think it's true that he didn't have good style or do you see something else at work? No, I don't, I don't think that's true at all, although I, 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 the stereotype is there. And maybe it's because he was so darn prolific that you almost figure, well, the guy couldn't have taken the time to revise this stuff. He was just pouring it out. But that's not true. He revised almost manically. And he was very concerned about style. He's, he's reading and revising. He, he drove printers crazy. He would have it set in print, typeset, 
and then read from there and then do the revisions on that. So that very often any any profit he might have got from the book was eaten up by the cost of doing all the all the revisions. But his style is not the kind of measured, clear, precise style that that classic French style calls for. Uh, and again, maybe there the epitome would be would be Flaubert again. It seems more rough and ready, more tacked together. But I think it again that betrays that compulsive storyteller that's in him, that he's got so much to say and so many things to cover that he hasn't got the time to, or at least it feels like he hasn't got the time to break it up into little chunks. Instead, we just get this torrent. But if you if you go with the torrent, it's a delight, unlike any other any other writer. He's often compared to Zola, because uh, Zola too created his own world with his own the combined families that make up all those uh, those Hugo Macarat novels of his. But Zola too famously was concerned that he was writing too much and he didn't have the time to go back and do the, the revisions that he wanted to. There's a, an entry in, in the, the journals of the Goncourt brothers where Zola comes to visit them and saying he just feels terrible. I've been reading proofs all morning and the style is so bad, but I just haven't got the time. This, the book has to be finished and in it goes. So um, I think Balzac's rough style can be overstated. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a, it's, just, it's just his style. And, and, and one gets used to it, especially in the course of the 1,200 pages of these two books. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you bring up Zola, and I, I, I can't help thinking how when, when you're reading Zola, who, who, you know, makes his debt to Balzac very clear, um, you know, but when you're, you're reading Zola, you have a sense that, you know, there's a side of Zola, which is that he, he, he's, he's a moralist. It's almost like he's standing in judgment. And mm-hmm. sometimes I feel as if Balzac is standing in tolerance instead, that yeah. there's, something, there's something exceedingly understanding of human nature about, you know, Balzac, whereas there's something almost more anatomical about Zola. Yeah. He referred to himself in one of his prefaces, Balzac did, as the, uh, the secretary of the modern world, that his job is to get it done. And the secretary is not there to pass judgment. Earlier, when I was describing the, the so-called spine of the, the human comedy, I, I think I was stating how, how, how dark those novels are and how tragic they are. But they don't feel dark and tragic, I think, in part because of the, the enthusiasm of the documenter. <laughs> and, and he can somehow, um, it seems, you know, take a character like uh, Vautran. I mean, who runs through several books, I mean, who appears, um, you know, in not just in these two, but in several books throughout the, the comedy UN. And, um, and, and Vautran can, you know, by turns be this, you know, manipulator, this destroyer of, you know, reputations and lives, this blackmailer, but also, you know, shows incredible passion and, you know, love and just this sort of sense of devotion it really does become a question, you know, throughout these books of exactly who's, who someone is because Balzac is able to see different parts of their personalities and bring them to the fore at different times. That's right. One of the defining characteristics of melodrama is that you have a, you have a one-dimensional character. This is the bad guy. This is the good guy. Uh, and you, you really don't get that on Balzac, even with a criminal like Latran, as you say, there's a, there's a redemptive side to him, uh, that, that, that love that he feels. And the passion that he feels is, is something strangely beautiful itself. Even if it is criminal passion, <laughs> it's, uh, there's, there's an intensity and, I, I don't know, a, a life in it that you can only admire. Mm-hmm. As you said, I mean, you know, he, 
Balzac's often is ending up with a long career in the police. So he sort of goes <laughs> from being, you know, the target of, you know, criminal pursuit and investigation to being, you know, in charge of those things. You wish you'd written that novel. You'd like to see how that went. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something something else um, sort of along those same lines is that I, I was um, surprised in the period when I was uh, reading Balzac by his you know, real affection and, and the, the influence of Walter Scott, um, you know, on Balzac, because you think of them as, you know, very, very different writers, you know, Balzac, you know, mostly in the gritty cities and, you know, Scott's books so often set in, you know, the highlands and in sort of rural settings. Um, but Balzac was um, influenced, I think, as a historical novelist uh, more than anything. But there's a moment and I think it's in Lost Illusions, not Lost Souls. There's a moment when he just sort of backs up and says, well, you know, the problem with Walter Scott is that he couldn't really describe what what makes women, what animates women, what makes women, you know, you know, what their desires are, you know, what they really want. And Balzac seems to take great pride in his understanding of, of women and his his affection for his women characters. Yeah. Yeah. I've got the passage here. The idealistic artist, artist uh, Dante, who is speaking to Lucien. You can adapt the Scottish novelist's form of dramatic dialogue to the history of France and still be original. There's no passion in Walter Scott. Either he himself is without it, or it's forbidden by the hypocritical laws of his country. <laughs> For him, woman is duty incarnate, but woman brings disorder into society through passion. Therefore, you, Lucien, must portray the passions then you'll have at your disposal immense resources that the great Scottish novelist had to forego. Yeah. It's interesting, huh? <laughs> it's really wonderful. <laughs> and uh, it's also really true that, um, you know, two of the characters who really compel you in these books are both, you know, courtesans, are both prostitutes, and they have not just hearts of gold, but just incredible sort of passion and yeah. generosity. And, and in, in the case of um, Esther, this desire for, for a moral life to be able to leave behind, you know, the gutter in a way and, you know, go, go instead in a godly moral direction. She's an incredible character. I shouldn't put, use that word. She's very credible. He makes an incredible character credible. She was, you know, raised as one of those opera rats. Remember that awful term? Uh, little girls oh, yeah. were basically raised and groomed for, for sex objects, you know, and it's just treated as a, as a matter of fact thing. Uh, and, the, and the wealthy guys are, are grooming them that way. She was one of those. And she goes from there into a life of relatively high class prostitution because she's so good looking. But in terms of th that theme that everything is for sale, poor Esther is literally reduced to a commodity and she's bought and sold repeatedly. And the only way out of the cycle for her ultimately is, is to choose her own death. I think the, uh, the death of Esther is one of the most moving things Balzac ever wrote. Uh, one, you come to feel so much for her. Uh, and she suffered so much at that point that it's really powerful. That happens in Lost Souls. In, in Lost Illusions, the similar moment is the death of the, the young actress, Coralie, who took up Lucien. Uh, I think she was something like 15 or 16 when their relationship starts. And she doesn't have much longer to live either. And both those prostituted women, they both have a nobility of soul that kind of makes them stand above almost everybody else in the whole pageant of the two books. Um, and there's a, again, on the part of the, on the part of the novelist, there's a, there's a sympathy, an imaginative sympathy that's so powerful in his depiction of them, uh, in his depiction of the, the courtesans that the book's about. 
courtesans is plural in the in the French title of Lost Souls. And I suppose the other courtesan we're concerned with is Lucien himself. Yeah. You know, who's let himself be bought in order to get this this imaginary better life that he thinks he's going to have. No, I, I think that, that that really becomes clear, um, you know, in reading the translation that, um, you know, Vautrin is, you know, manipulating both, you know, Esther and Lucian and prostituting them. He's basically their, their pimp in a lot of ways, you know, and he, he sort of lives through, you know, he uses them as his tools towards his own fame and wealth. And that's what he's, that, that's what he's trying to achieve. But Lucian very much takes on uh, the role of a prostitute, and it's part of what leads him to his own doom. Gender is really interesting in these books uh, because uh, Lucien is always described in very feminine terms. He's got feminine hips, even. Uh, Balzac mentioned, makes a point of mentioning uh, his, his skin is very soft uh, and so on. He's uh, feminized all throughout. Whereas Carlos Herrera, Vautrin, you know, you know, also given to queer desire, you know, is, is just described again and again as a, you know, sort of grotesque figure. I mean, as someone who's immediately repellent. Yeah, scarred both inside and out. This sort of brings me around um, again to uh, Zola. You know, Zola's Nana, you know, who's a, a prostitute is you know, really a, a monster. I mean, she devours all of Paris. I mean, like literally, almost literally, she she eats everything up. Um, she yeah. she you know dominates everything. And Zola is just so much so much less sympathetic uh, to Nana than you find you know Balzac with Esther or with Coralie. We we've just been um, you know we've been we've been talking a bit about. Balzac and Zola. Um, but uh, the other thing which is interesting is you've just delivered your translation of the, the next work thing we're going to work together on, uh, which is a new translation of Stendhal's famous Red and Black, which was another book I, I really, you know, identified with closely um, growing up, which is itself kind of frightening. But, nevertheless, <laughs> uh, but still, it's funny that it only occurred to me later just how similar the stories of uh, Julien Sorel in Red and Black and Lucien in uh, Lost Illusions actually tend to be. They're both, you know, impoverished, you know, young men from the provinces who just seek to make their fortune. And um, did, did you feel that as you sort of jumped from Lucien's story to Julien's? Yeah, and their, and their names are even similar enough, Julien and Lucien, that you get a little confused sometimes. And I probably typed the wrong name from time to time. If you set the two stories together, there are, there are many, many connections you could make, but there are also really important differences. I was describing, at least in my view, Lucien as a, as a sort of a passive character, someone to whom things happen. Julien really tries to take hold of his destiny. Uh, his ideal, of course, is Napoleon, the, the ultimate nobody from nowhere who ended up on top of the world, but dominating the world. Uh, so what a... What an inspiring source for Julian, but that, that could be me too. And anyone in this day and age could become that. Napoleon has shown us that it's, that it's possible. Um, and so as a result, he, he charges forward into life, determined to, to make his fortune and make his way. He, like Lucien, however, makes a lot of bad decisions. Uh, likewise, overthinks at the wrong time, underthinks at the wrong time, and uh, fails to see when, when he's got something really wonderful right in front of him, uh, fails to appreciate it. A big, big difference is in the end, though, of the two characters. Again, without giving any spoilers to anyone who hasn't read the two of them. But at Red and Black, there's a, a spectacular, almost operatic ending. And Julien 
seems to come to a kind of peace at the end of his life that poor Lucien never never does. Lucien's tormented to the end. And Lucien's death is, is a, you know, he, he looks back on his life as a failure. Julien has kind of reached a, a plateau instead. And uh, that gives that book quite a different, quite a different feel. And another contrast though, between Stendhal and Balzac, I think that's, that's interesting to think about is the relationship between the author and the character. That Stendhal will criticize Julien and stand apart from him. But in the main, I think he identifies with him and kind of invites the reader to identify with Julien. Whereas Balzac, I think, never really, he can sympathize with Lucien, but he never really identifies with him. Uh, Lucien is not a Balzacian uh, stand-in. Whereas Julien maybe is a little bit of a a Stendhal (laughs) stand-in. So that that too makes for a different feel of the two books. Yeah, I agree. When I first read it, I totally identified with Julien. I would have been delighted if my life had taken such a path. Fool that I was back then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Stendhal certainly gives um, you know Julien a better mentor than (laughs) Balzac gives. That's for sure. For sure. So we, we've just started really talking about, um, you know, there's the, the so many, it's always such a pleasure talking about different books and, you know, possible books to translate with you. Are, are there are there authors you'd really like to, to have a shot at now? I mean, I know that you, you know, you, you came to me after, you know, when you were finishing up Lost Souls and said, you know, I really want to do Red and Black. And it's uh-huh. like, well, I mean, you know, how could I possibly not want to have, <laughs> you know, a new translation of Red and Black? But are, are there other authors who are sort of, you know, in, in your sights that it would be great to work on? Oh, so many, dozens, dozens. And I'd, I'd like to go back to some of the people I've, I've worked with before. I'd like to go back to Flaubert. I'm really interested in, in Salambo, that, that mm-hmm. strange novel of ancient Carthage. And his, his masterpiece, really, uh, Sentimental Education, would be a, a mm-hmm. book to work with. With Stendhal, sticking with Stendhal for a while, uh, Lucien Luen, has, that unfinished novel, has not had a, an English translation in I don't know when. I think it, at, at least a half a century. I think quite a bit longer than that. And then, of course, there's Balzac. I mean, wouldn't Cousin Bet be a wonderful book to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so many other uh, titles in the, in the, the uh, human comedy. And I'll also confess that I, I've had a longstanding wish that I could uh, do my own translation of all seven volumes of Proust. Just, just work my way through from beginning to end. There's a recent uh, retranslation that was done, uh, although the... Uh, publisher assigned a different translator to each volume, which I think is, is a kind of a shame. It'd be nice to see one, one sensibility matched with Proust's all the way through the way the, the original translation uh, with Scott Moncrief was. So anyway, that's a, that's a fantasy. And maybe someday that'll happen, but, uh, but I don't know. There, again, so many things to do. There's, there's no shortage. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's definitely no shortage. Um, well, th- this has been a, a great conversation. You know, it's really been a, a dream to see these two books, um, you know, newly translated um, together. Um, you know, I always sort of felt that, you know, seeing the totality would be a great thing for readers. And the translations that were available of Lost Illusions, because it's so much better known, were significantly better than the translation we had to work with on, uh, you know, the, the book that was most recently called A Harlot High and Low before okay. um, it was called uh, Lost Souls. So, um, so it's a thrill having these out and uh, great speaking with you and, uh, you know, look forward to um, Red and Black coming out. Yeah, great, great. Thank you very much, Doug. I enjoyed it too.